You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. I remember distinctly the first time I asked our head of human resources, Paula Pryor, to apply us to be recognized as a great place to work. Paula looked at me and said, do you have any idea what it takes to be a great place to work? We'll never get selected. And I looked at Paula and I told her that we'd learn from the process and asked her to complete the application. And sure enough, as Paula said, we didn't get selected the first year we applied. But we received the feedback from Great Place to Work. We made adjustments to our operating model and applied again. And again, we didn't get selected. (laughs) But we received the feedback, we made adjustments, and in 2012, we were selected for the first time as a Great Place to Work. And in seven of the last nine years, WND has made the Great Place to Work list. The second point is that scale both helps and hurts being a Great Place to Work. When we were a much smaller company and we would receive feedback about our benefits packages, we didn't have the financial luxury to just throw money at an issue to be deemed great. But we were also a firm of only 100 people where everyone knew everyone else and the sense of being part of W&D was palpable in all we did. And we have scaled to being a company of over 1,000 people today. And we've worked extremely hard to maintain that feeling of a small family-owned company. And that has not been easy. Finally, as a larger company today, we have the financial wherewithal to make long-term investments, recruiting diverse talent, building wonderful workspaces, and promoting interaction through travel and technology that we could have never done a decade ago. There's no doubt in my mind that Walker and Dunlop's incredible financial performance is directly tied to creating and maintaining a great place to work. Let me introduce my two guests and then we will dive into our discussion. Michael Bush is Global Chief Executive of Great Place to Work, with over 25 years of experience leading small and mid-sized organizations through transformational growth. Driven by a love of business and an unwavering commitment to fair and equitable treatment, in 2015, Michael acquired ownership and currently serves as Global CEO of Great Place to Work, headquartered in Oakland, California, with operations in more than 60 countries worldwide. Michael sits on the board of Workday, and graduated from Stanford Business School. Gary Pincus is chairman of McKinsey's North American practice. He was previously the managing partner for the firm in North America, and before that, led McKinsey's office for the Western United States. Gary is also the former global leader of McKinsey's private equity and principal investor practice, which he helped co-found more than two decades ago. Gary serves on multiple nonprofit and academic institution boards, went to Stanford undergrad, and has an MBA from Harvard Business School. So first, thank you both for joining me today. I'd like to structure this discussion in the following manner. What makes great companies great? What will make great companies great over the next decade? And then steps companies can take to move towards greatness. So Michael, let me start with you. Great Places to Work calls itself the global authority on workplace culture. So I looked up culture and the two definitions are, quote, the art and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. And the second is the customs, arts, social institutions, 
and achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group. So how do you define workplace culture, given it seems to vary group to group? Well, we're certainly not the global authority on that. So those are some pretty tough definitions, but thank you, Willie, and it's an honor to be here with you and Gary. So I think the best way to think about culture is how does it feel at your workplace? How does it feel? And then think about the dialogue that you want to have with somebody when you're describing that. Is your workplace a place where people ask you for your ideas and seem to fully consider them? Is your workplace a place where people, the leaders are honest when they're communicating with you? Is the workplace a place where people involve you in decisions that are going to affect your work? Do you feel respected? Do you feel listened to? Do people want to hear your ideas? Do you feel like you're being treated fairly? Do you feel like you're being treated equitably? Do you enjoy the people that you work with? Do you feel like you're part of a team and you're needed and you're necessary? And do you have pride in the work that you do? And does the organization strive for a high level of performance? These are the kinds of things that when you put it all together, when a person says, well, actually, I just go to work and I punch in and I do what I'm told and I go back home, that's a description of the culture of that place. And it doesn't have some of the things that I mentioned compared to another culture that you've got more of the things that I mentioned. And so when somebody describes it, when somebody's in a, in a high trust culture, one that is treating them as a person and not as an employee, when you ask them what it's like, they get excited. That You instantly know something about the culture. But when they drop their head and they go, well, you know, it's a paycheck, you know something about the culture. So, Michael, two of the terms you use there, trust and fairness. I've heard you speak previously about two organizations, Four Seasons on trust and Salesforce on fairness. Can you Describe why Four Seasons and Salesforce are so exemplary on those two attributes. Yeah, so those happen to be, you know, a couple of companies that are on our list and find themselves on our list every year. We got a lot of companies like yours that I can talk about. The, the great companies have one thing in common, a high level of trust. People trust their leaders and they trust the people that they work with. Two-thirds of the questions we ask, we ask about 60 questions, are about trust. So without trust, there is no engagement, there is no happiness, there is no innovation, there is no inclusion, there is no sense of belonging. You have to have trust to have those other things. Four Seasons and Salesforce, and I can mention many other companies, are two companies where those things are true. And how do we know? We ask the employees. We don't do a, a flyby and interviews and things like that. It's determined totally by the employees by asking them a set of questions and finding out what kind of experience that they're actually having. And so we have a trust score. As a matter of fact, those companies are great at it. You look at their retention, you look at their attrition, you look at the cost to recruit, you look at their win rate on recruitment. All those scores are best in class for a reason. So Gary, Michael was just talking about recruiting. I remember when I was in business school, McKinsey recruited by far the most number of graduates in my class of any employer, and they were clearly doing something right back then. You both serve on the management committee at McKinsey, so you manage a very large organization, and then you also work on a daily basis with lots of companies that are also on the Great Place to Work list. Of those characteristics that Michael just mentioned, similar inside of McKinsey or the great companies you see or anything that you would add to that list? 
Well, at first and foremost, Willie, congratulations on the earnings report. And as you say, equally importantly, what you've accomplished uh, in terms of being one of the great companies in America. I know you've, you've built this over multiple years. I would share Michael's list. I might use slightly different words, but I know his words of trust, fairness, listening. Trust is both the trust your employees have with each other and with you, but it's also the trust your customers have for you. It's the trust the stakeholders in the world at large, which is becoming an increasingly important part of our our business ecosystem that gives you the license to operate. It's quite critical. We use fairness. uh, We use a different phrase at McKinsey. We call ourselves a caring meritocracy. Two important words connected together. It's a meritocracy. It is grounded in what you accomplish, but it's got to be done in a way that's caring. That leads to fairness. It also leads to trust. And listening is a funny thing. I think it is really, really important to be willing to adapt and listen as part of that adaptation. But, you know, there's that old cliche, you want to be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your brain falls out. And there is an element, I think, for leaders of you want to make sure you're hearing what people have to say, but in the end, we turn to leaders to lead. And so listen, adapt, but also have a plan. And unless you have new information that would cause you to change that plan, be responsive to the listening, but don't feel like you need to take it all in and then actually do something different unless you agree with it. That listening point, one of my recent guests said, we have two ears and one mouth and we ought to use them proportionately. Michael, Cisco has been your top pick at Great Place to Work for the last two years, yet Cisco's stock price has been flat over the last two years at $48 a share. There's some very powerful statistics on the Great Place to Work website that talk about growth in revenues of Great Places to Work being 3x faster than the market, shareholder returns being 3x greater than the market. So how is it that the number one company on your list has stood still for two years? We have quite a few lists, and they're number one on our world's best list. So I think that the data that we share is over time. So if you take a look at Cisco from 1987 to 2021, you'll see that they outperformed the Russell 2000 and the, and the Russell 3000 a little under three to one. Uh, so that's what we're talking about, you know, not, not a short period of time. We could take your fine company, I think it went public maybe 2008, 2009. Over that time frame, the S&P 500's up 200%. You're up 1,000, I think. You, you know, it's kind of a, a, a 10x, which is, that's what great places to work do. They shatter the S&P 500 and the Russell 2000 and the Russell 3000. And so we look at that data, we talk about that data because being a great place to work is not only about the experience you're creating for your great people, but it's about making money. So our belief is it's the way to make a lot of money over a long period of time. And to Gary's point around customers, as Anil Boosri said and has said on your webinar, he's never met a company with happy customers and unhappy employees. So it's driven from the inside. It's totally the inside out. If your people are having a great experience, they're going to create a great experience for their customers. Gary, on, on Michael's point there, going back and, if you will, going back to Cisco's fantastic market performance, they are truly a great company and have completely outperformed. But I read a McKinsey paper done by Chris Bradley, and he, in 2017, looked at basically 50 companies. There were a couple overlaps between these three seminal books, but In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters, Built to Last, and Good to Great by Jim Collins. And in his analysis, he took a look at the performance of those 50 stocks over the 20 years after those three seminal books were written. And what was so interesting was that if you'd held those stocks for that 20-year period, you'd only have 
beaten the index by 1.7%. And so good to great one by 2.6% above the index, built to last 1.6, and in search of excellence, only 1.5. So not exactly outperformance. And Bradley pointed out that great companies are more likely to do really bad than really well after getting to that level. And he went on to write that if it were not for cigarettes or Philip Morris, Jim Collins' outperformance in both books would literally go up in smoke. So that one bet on Philip Morris being a great company back between 1980 to 2000 was what allowed for his outperformance. What's this tell us about two things? One, seeking to be defined as a great company. And then second, sustainability of that status over time. Well, I think on the sustainability, Willie, it it tells you it's really hard. Michael's point on Cisco, if you go over a long enough time frame, it's been tremendous outperformance. If you pick any short version of that time frame, you might or might not see that. I think I have what I'm about to say right, but if I remember correctly, General Electric is the only company that is still on the Dow in any form from when the Dow was originally formed. Now, that obviously goes back over a very long period of time. But, you know, those were the great companies of their time. Chris is making another argument in his paper, and our org guys would not wholeheartedly agree with it, but I'll at least assert it because he's got some good data. His argument is that strategy is critical. That is, where you compete is more important than how you compete. I'd add my own component to that, which is that where you compete is the critical first question. What you do when you get there is equally critical over time. But the core of of Chris's argument is being the best house in a bad neighborhood is not going to get you a great real estate price, if I could make the real estate analogy. And so he's really saying you need to make sure that you're in the right place strategically, that you've got a dynamic process for reallocating resources to follow that strategy. And where I would tie that back to being a great company is you can't make the decision about where to be. You can't make the decision about dynamic resource allocation if you're not a great company in the first place that has decision-making processes that allow you to get there, or at least you can't make it continuously. You might be able to get it right once, but you're not going to get it right over multiple years. So, Michael, what Gary says there is really interesting to me in the sense that most of your survey focuses on what goes on inside the company as it relates to everything from communication to the environment to the way that employees are treated, but to my knowledge, doesn't really focus on strategy. And yet the McKinsey paper really says that, you know, you can have a BHAG, as Jim Collins identifies in Good to Great, and you've got some great plan, but unless it's a really good plan, just having a BHAG doesn't do it. And so how is it that there's such a correlation between great places to work and financial results when your analysis doesn't really focus on the strategic element? I think because, you know, running a company, which I run and, you know, you, you run as well, if you're able to create an environment where all your employees feel cared for, and I mean all your employees, regardless of who they are, what they do in the organization, where they came from or their background, if you have that skill, which is a skill that few companies have, you have the skill to do everything else great. You have the skill to develop great strategy. You have the skill to make great decisions. You have the skill to innovate because the people part is the hardest part. Everybody in business school learns the other parts. 
We all learn those parts. And at the reunion, everybody talks about how they wish they had went to the people classes that they didn't go to. That's what people talk about, because this is the hardest part. If you can do the hardest part of anything, you're going to do pretty well on the others. This is my experience and the great leaders that I get to meet. This is actually the way it is. If you're innovating, if you're adapting, you got to be able to listen to your customers. And if you're not listening to your employees, you're probably not that great at listening to your customers. The deep sense of listening, every leader has a point of view or you're not a leader. Okay, so you've got a point of view, but are you willing to alter your point of view based on what people are saying, which is what listening is? Are you willing to adjust your point of view? Are you willing to respect a person enough that regardless of what their rank is, what their title is, what school they went to, that they may have an idea that's going to sharpen your idea? That's respect. So if you're showing that inside, the customers are going to feel it too. Great companies that are having a great experience for their employees, look at their customer scores, their customer satisfaction scores. Do a Qualtrics comparison of the employee experience and the customer experience, and you'll see the correlation between these two things. Gary, I I saw you smile when Michael said that all of us who went to business school didn't really want to focus on those HR classes and on the and at the same time when we go back for reunions we all say we might we should, probably should spend a little bit more time on that stuff. I it makes me think about I had Dr. Mark Brackett from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence on the webcast last March or April when everyone was dealing with the pandemic and. I think back on that and think about how insightful Mark is on EQ and how every business school curriculum ought to actually have a class on EQ because what Michael is talking about there is personal interaction is really what makes these organizations great. Yes, the strategy is important, but if you don't get that personal interaction to be able to attract and retain human talent, you're not going very far. I wholeheartedly agree, and I, I smile because even at least when I was at business school, they would tell you at the time in your HR and your organizational behavior class that you're going to want to listen because 30 years from now when you come back for your reunion, people are going to say this was the most important class you didn't pay attention to. And that's what made me smile. They were fully aware 30 years ago that they were bumping into that. I do think there's a lot in that that can be taught. And I think companies can teach people to do a better job around things like EQ. But I think an awful lot of it is apprenticeship and osmosis on the job, which is a form of teaching, of course. But it's that that one-on-one, it's the boss mentoring five people under him or her, more so than it's the formal training program where everybody goes away somewhere for a week of training. Yeah. Michael, the stats that the McKinsey paper pointed out, though, as it relates to the slight overperformance of the good to great and, and, and built-to-last companies, makes me wonder about leadership changes in the role of CEOs. In another McKinsey paper called The The Mindset and Practices of Excellent CEOs by Carolyn Dewar, Martin Hurt, and Scott Keller. They state that what CEOs control, a company's biggest moves, accounts for 45% of a company's performance. Does that weighting seem high or low to you? And have you ever seen examples of great companies being run by mediocre CEOs? To me, that that 45% seems low. And no, I haven't. I have not seen the mediocre CEO run a place that that's a great place to work for all. I just haven't seen it. You know, maybe it's out there. I also, you know, you know, now just I think about Jeff Bezos saying that one day Amazon's going to go bankrupt. It's impossible for us to think about that now, but one day it may come true because over time things happen. But I haven't seen the mediocrity. And the CEO is a very, very powerful person. I don't care if they're introvert, 
extrovert, charismatic, non-charismatic. The company moves based on the CEO. The company does what the CEO says is important. And so that 45%, I just feel like it's low. The CEO sets the tone. The CEO defines the culture, not what's on the website. It's what the CEO does and doesn't do. Who the CEO listens to, who the CEO respects, all those things set set a tone for, for the organization. So when the CEO says, we've got to outsource or we've got to move into Europe, it happens. The impossible never done before happens. And when the CEO says, and when the CEO is committed to what they're saying, you know, I just put that proviso out there is there are a lot of CEOs saying diversity and inclusion is important, but their actions don't necessarily support that in terms of what they do. When they lean in and put their shoulder behind something, a vaccine appears. The impossible happens when a CEO leans in. They can do anything and CEOs can make people believe anything. They have that ability to make people believe what's not possible. So that's why, you know, I just feel like in the area of diversity and inclusion, they just need to lean in and put their shoulder behind their words and the world will change in a remarkable way. It's totally up to the CEO. So given that being a great place to work is something that lots of CEOs would like their companies to be named, do you ever find that CEOs lean in on asking their employees to give rankings on the company that aren't necessarily applicable? to try and get on your very coveted list and uh, get the benefits from it? Yeah, definitely. And I would call those mediocre CEOs because what they don't know is that you can't control your people. You can't do it. They're going to let us know, and they do, that the CEO's leaning in. We have all the mechanisms within our tool to make sure that that occurs. And that's a mediocre CEO. You know, that's a CEO who wants recognition for something that's not earned or deserved. That's an unethical CEO. And so that's mediocre at best. You know, a real CEO is one like you who tries for it, doesn't get it, but keeps going because you're trying to create a culture, an environment of high performance that's focused on your people. There's many ways to get designations as a best company from people that you can pay in order to get that. The thing that makes ours different is it comes from the employees. 85% of the scoring comes from the employees. So when you're focused on that and and on the employee voice, it's, as you know, the worst day for me is Friday at 5 or 1 p.m. when I get my survey results because I'm going to have a bad weekend. It doesn't matter how great your company is, and I run a great place to work. All our results are public. But you see things you don't want to see. You read things that break your heart because you're working your brains out trying to create this great situation, and you realize you're not doing it. That's a hell of a thing. The mediocre CEO, we don't see them again, including the CEO that says, Michael, we want to be a great place to work. What do I have to do? You got to serve your employees. I'm like, hello? Hello? They're gone, okay, because they want to get it another way. They want to hire a marketing firm to write all these things. It's a real thing, as you know. It takes a really committed person to look at the employee experience, and when you're a CEO, you feel responsible for it. This ain't HR. This is you. This is a reflection of you and what you're doing and what you're not doing. And so there's no scorecard like the employee scorecard. You know, customers are are one thing. I love customers. You know, couldn't be in the business without them. But there's nothing like your people and your people telling you who you are and who you aren't and the gap between your words and your actions. And then you got to build yourself over the weekend and get into those actions. Gary, Hearing Michael talk about that, it makes me think that 
and somewhat referencing back to our comments as it relates to the classes that people take at business school, where we all think we need to take corporate strategy and finance, and we really should be focused on the softer stuff. Similarly, does McKinsey get people who call up? I mean, I would think you know, thousands of companies call McKinsey and say, come work on this financial strategy with us. Come work on this strategic plan with us. Do they ever get back the results of what Michael just said and said, come help us figure out how to become a great place to work? How do we work on the softer skills? Or does McKinsey not focus on that and you stay on the harder stuff? I know my, uh, my partners in the organizational uh, practice for us would be chagrined to hear you even ask the question. Um, <laughs> well, fortunately, I think I, I think it's okay to say that Walker Nellop doesn't exactly need you to help us on that right now. We may at some point, but for right now, I don't have to look at that. It, I, it's about a third of the work we do. And my one slight caveat to Michael's point from our organization practice is they would say there are certain archetypes for success. And the trick is to make sure within that archetype, you've got the recipe right. So the Army is a great success story. It has a very different recipe for how it delivers and what kind of place it is than the FANGs, for example, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, et cetera. Those are talent-based recipes, and therefore they have a set of things that make them great places to work. The Army is arguably a great place to work, but it is a very different place to work. And so a big part of using our terminology around if the successful organizations is getting the recipe right for what you're trying to do and the social contract with your employees right for how you're trying to do it. So talking about that, Gary, there's a stat on the Great Place to Work website that caught my attention, which was that 67% of fast growth companies will fail within 10 years. What is it in your view that converts fast growth into failure? Well, I'd love to answer the reverse of it, which what, what is it that converts fast growth into success or ongoing success? But to answer your question uh, narrowly, there's a few things I think. We've done some work. It goes back a couple of years ago, so probably the numbers are slightly out of date. But it says there's something about the billion dollar in sales point. No idea why it's a magic number, but companies, particularly software companies, really have trouble busting through that number. They tend to stall at around that point, and it's a relatively small subset that busts through. You know, I have a couple theories for that. I haven't. We haven't done the math to get you to Michael's data, but the data seems very consistent with what I've seen. Really fast growth companies tend not to put the fundamentals in place. It's sort of the wild west. It's a market share grab. It's go make sure that, you know, you got the strategy right. That's why you're growing so quickly. Just grab all you can as fast as you can. And what you find is what got you there won't keep you there after a certain point. Either the growth slows down and you can't keep going or the growth keeps going and you don't have an institution that's been stabilized behind it to drive that growth. And so... The really the tough question is somewhere around that billion dollar plus point. How do you preserve the magic that got you there, whatever it was that was so special in the secret sauce, not just the strategy, but in the nature of how you ran the business? And at the same time, put in the institutional underpinnings that will allow you to continue to build the next generation of the company. And you're going to lose some people in that process, right? It's by definition not going to be quite as entrepreneurial. It's not going to be quite as wild west. It may not even be quite as much fun. But it's what's critical in order to get you to that next leap forward. So, Michael, on that, the bifurcation, if you will, between high growth companies and more stable companies, kind of looping back to my comment at the beginning that when Walker and Dunlop was a much smaller company, we really didn't have the free cash flow to go and change our benefits package or have a 
rent office space that made everyone feel like they were working in fantastic office space and a bunch of other things. And as you get bigger and bigger, as you become more and more successful, you can invest in those things. But that doesn't mean that just those high growth companies that have massive cash flow are the great companies because there are lots of other companies that have become that way. What's the breakdown between sort of, if you will, more mature businesses and fast growth businesses on the great places to work list? Yeah, there are less fast growth companies. I think for the reasons that Gary mentioned, they're trying to do something else, you know, usually get to the next round, you know, for example. So, and they're not focused on EBITDA, for example, you know, they're trying to spend all they can to grab some market share and based on something that's going on. And, and so culture is about that. It's not about creating equality and fairness. You'll find those environments scoring low on equality, equity, and fairness. So you don't find a lot of them on our list for that reason. And when you're small, yes, you know, you've got a town hall meeting with 100 people. You can connect with people. You know, that, that is an advantage, but you don't have the money that a larger company has. So it's a, a different kind of a challenge. But here's the things that I know that are interesting. We have customers that people make the most money compared to any other sector on, let's say, investment banking, hypothetically speaking. Okay, where people are making amounts of money that are extreme and there are not great places to work. So the money that that's not it. They're happy, maybe, but they are like, it's not a great place to work. But yet they're making tons of dough. There are companies with ping pong tables, pet massage studios and all these things that we're you know, going to be working our way back to that are not great places to work. It's not the benefits and the perk. Everybody talks about that because people like reading about those things. There's no correlation between those perks and being a great place to work. There are places where we survey some places where people are making less than $5 a day. Less than $5 a day. Now, I must say they're not really great places to work, but there are pockets in those environments that are great places to work. And it's because of a leader who brings their people water during the two breaks a day versus everybody else having to run down a hillside and reach into a barrel to get some water. These are extreme situations, but we survey all kinds of places. This tells me clearly it's not the perks, it's not the benefits, it's how you're treated. It's how you're treated. You can have inferior perks and inferior pay. And people say it's a great place to work because of the way the leader talks to the person cares for the person. These are the soft things. I will talk about these things and people go, is there another way I can be a great place to work? There is no other way to be a great place to work. And I don't care what industry you're in. People care about how they're spoken to. People care about whether they're listened to. People care about whether you think they're needed and you ask them for their ideas on how to make something better for the customer and you actually listen to it. People care about being a part of a team, trying to accomplish something that's impossible that they can't do alone. People want to be a part of things. So these are things, it doesn't matter what the industry is. And it's up to the leader to create an experience for everyone. And the final point on this, there are great leaders who are great with homogeneous teams. And uh, I don't call them great for all leaders. There are leaders who are great with all male teams. I don't call those great for all leaders. Okay, so the challenge for leaders, especially in 2021 and beyond, is can you be a great leader for everyone, including people who are quite different than you? Are you able to do that? And the scores indicate we have a problem in this regard. There are people who are great leaders, you know, by the magazines 
who, if you look at their teams and you look at their scores, they clearly have some blind spots in terms of gender, in terms of age, in terms of millennial, Gen Z, and so on. So the role of the leader is to be a great leader for all. That's a great segue into the future and what is required of companies, not only to be great today, but to be great in 2030. And Michael, you gave a speech in 2017, focusing on your vision for 2030. And in that speech, you said that your vision is that every company would be a fair and equitable workplace by 2030. And you even talked and hoped that we wouldn't even be talking about diversity and inclusion task forces and things of that nature by 2030. Given all that has happened during 2020, have we moved closer to that vision or further away from that vision? You know, I would say that something like 10% of companies are moving closer to that vision. 90%, it's the same. But there are 10% of companies that are doing things. You know, we happen to work with some of those companies to know that they are fundamentally changing how they operate. You know, a company that's now talking about pipeline, we don't have the pipeline. That's a company that's so 20. 10, 2000, 1990, been hearing those things. The reason I react to diversity councils is they've been around for 35 years and they've gotten us where we are today. Those things clearly don't work. You know, what works is a CEO letting the company know this is what we're trying to do. It's complicated and we need the best talent. And all we're doing is going out and recruiting from the same places, the same people. And how can you statistically say you're getting the best talent? You're getting the best talent from where you're going. But what about all this talent over here, you know, that's around you? That's what diversity and inclusion is, believing that there's great talent that you're not getting and your company needs it. It's not about race. It's about the war for top talent. That's why you need to expand your aperture and go and get that talent. So great companies that are inspired for real based on George Floyd's murder, are looking at at how do we find this hard-to-find talent. There are organizations like Management Leadership for Tomorrow. You work with them, MLT. This is an organization that primes and finds 8,000 hard-to-find people every single year and prepares them to work in professional businesses. You know this because you work with them. If a company wants to know how do I find them, There's the organization, Management for Tomorrow, Google them, they've got them, ready to go. And if you want to know, well, how do I create an environment that's going to be comfortable for these people where they can thrive, MLT will help you with that too, in terms of getting you certified and getting you ready to do that. When I talk to a CEO who's talking about the same things they were doing in 19, you know, in 2018, in terms of diversity and inclusion, I know things are going to stay the same for that company. They're going to stay the same because- Here's where organizations fail. They actually want to keep doing the same thing they've been doing because it's working. So why should I change? And the moral and ethical arguments, they don't work. Nobody cares about those. We want to have our employees look like the customers we serve. Companies don't. That doesn't really make a difference. I've been hearing that for 30 years. The thing that makes a difference is when someone says, we have a purpose. Diversity and inclusion and belonging happen for purpose-driven companies. Those after shareholder returns only, they're not going to do anything in this regard. It's do you have a purpose? Do you have multiple stakeholders? Are you looking to solve some of the world's most complex problems, including delivering that killer shareholder return? But if you care for employees, how can you not care for the environment? 
you know, how, how do you do that? Oh, I care for my people, but no, we don't have to do anything. It doesn't make sense to the people either. So it's the comprehensive picture. I'm inspired about 10% of the companies who are deciding that they see the future and that they need to change. And meaning the CEO looking in the mirror needs to change. The other 90%, I'm not so inspired. I see them now talking about innovation and getting back to business. They've forgotten what happened in 2020. So Gary, McKinsey works with the world's largest, most sophisticated companies on a daily basis. Michael just put it sort of 10% got the memo and 90 haven't. A similar analysis from your client interactions and are we headed towards the right spot or people did people miss the memo? I think 100% got the memo. It's a question of how many read it, if I could follow that analogy. And I'd love to disagree with Michael on this one. I'd be hard pressed to do so. There's been a lot of good work, including done by us, on women in the workforce and how critical it is to have more gender parity in the workforce, not as a moral imperative, but exactly as Michael said, from a talent imperative. You know, it's hard to make things hum at, if you're a 10 person organization, you could in theory be 10 guys. Uh, you could in theory be 10 white guys. But if you're at the scale you guys are now, Willie and many of our clients, that's of course impossible. And so you've got to figure out how to solve some part of this in order to actually make sure you're getting the best talent, the best diversity of perspectives and views in the room. And I think we've still got a ways to go. We've got a report coming out, so I don't want to front run it uh, in a few weeks called Race in the Workplace, the Black Experience. We're going to then tick through a number of other groups that have been less represented in the workforce over time. And so, you know, watch this space. We'll have something to report uh, on that alongside what we've done with women. It's hard, though. I mean, I don't think Michael would disagree with this. You know, part of why people don't do it is not because they don't want to. It's just you try stuff. It doesn't work. you got to try different stuff. It doesn't work. And you've got to come out with a set of new ideas. And so that's why I say I wouldn't say our clients aren't trying. I would say we have a a little bit maybe of a failure of intent and, and a little bit of a failure of new ideas that gets you to where we ultimately need to get to. Michael, you talked about trust and fairness as two of the key issues that make great companies great. When companies talk about these issues and being trustworthy and fair on issues of equality, how can you be a great company if you aren't being trustworthy and fair on these issues? I don't think I know. You can be a great company because, you know, that scoring is relative. It doesn't matter what company you take. We survey 10,000 companies a year in 150 countries. And you can go to Sweden and look at the difference in experience in terms of trust experienced by men and women. It's different. It's different. I don't care what country in the world you're in. There's a group of people that are being treated in an inferior way compared to others. So in the U.S., you'll always find at the far right, in terms of the lowest experiences, in in terms of trust, being involved, promotions going to those who who deserve them, being the black employees. Okay, and above that, the brown employees. So this is a global phenomenon that there's a group of people in India, you know, depending on your religious beliefs. There's a group of people that are being treated one way and and a group of people being treated another one. This is a global phenomenon commonality. When I talk about for all and diversity outside the U.S., people say that's a U.S. problem. It's not. It's a problem in your country, too. 
And all you have to do is look at the data and see that there's a group of people who are being treated better or different than another. So then, but yes, can you in any country in the world pick the top 100? Sure you can, you know, but it's relative, but you still have every company and, and all of our companies are on record for saying you can pick any CEO. Yes, for example, we're proud to be on the diversity list. Yes, we're proud to be on the great place to work for all of us. But when you bring up this topic, every CEO will say, we have a long way to go. So, Gary, shifting to the future on some other metrics, there's a McKinsey paper that was just published titled Organizing for the Future, Nine Keys to Becoming a Future-Ready Company by Aaron DeSmet, Chris Gagnon, and Elizabeth Mygat. I hope I pronounced their names correctly. No. Uh, and they basically start the paper by saying, ask any executive about their company and you can expect to be shown an org chart. And what they basically say is that, you know, the org chart was created in 1854. And since then, we've basically been structuring organizations around org charts and boxes. And they go on to basically say that in today's world, companies need to prioritize creativity, speed, and accountability. How is that shift from basically an org chart corporate culture to creativity, speed, and accountability impacting businesses today? And where are you seeing either certain industries or businesses really heading there and others that are still, if you will, trapped in the old antiquated org chart? Well, so I think their paper is very thoughtful and the sense of where they, I think, see businesses needing to go. And I wholeheartedly agree with their characterization around, you know, I'll call it agility, you know, uh, creativity writ large. I think it's a slightly unfair characterization to say that if you asked any CEO, they would point to the org chart. And even our work in the search of excellence, which goes back to the 80s, said, hey, organization is more than just the org chart, right? It's the structure, uh, of course, but it's also uh, processes, it's the systems you put in place, et cetera. The heart, I think, of what they're talking about, of this notion of the company or the organization of the future, is that it needs to be much more agile than what an org chart suggests. It needs to be more than, you know, the org chart that then became the matrix in order to create agility. And it needs to be much more free form. And so you define yourself less by who you report to and more by what you're trying to accomplish. And there's been a lot of work that we've done around using teams that are much more fluid and agile, same way development organization would in a tech company, that they form to accomplish something. And when they're done accomplishing it, they unform. And that's one of the ways you both can unleash creativity and also just have more fluidity in the organization. I'll comment on this idea of purpose at the center of the enterprise. That's become a popular term almost to the point now where it's become a little cliche. Most companies had a vision or a mission, but this idea of purpose that goes beyond what are we trying to do, but why do we bother to exist in the first place? At a bare minimum, employees are looking for that. The next generation is looking to understand what the purpose of the enterprise is and to be able to have a somewhat clear answer to that question. So, Michael, on that purpose point, the article does talk about meeting employees' needs for affiliation, social cohesion, purpose, and meaning. How do great companies do that in the sense that you've studied, you see it all over the place, but what is it, does it need to have an overarching mission that everyone can kind of grab onto? Or can you meet employees' needs for affiliation, social cohesion, purpose, and meaning just by being a great company in the office every day? Yeah, I think you have to be able to describe that purpose. And people need to feel it. Meaning when the CEO talks about it, when senior leaders talk about it, when mid-level managers talk about it, when supervisors talk about it, 
which at great companies, those levels are saying the same thing, which is quite a challenge. They're saying the same thing and they are finding ways to talk about why we exist, why we exist. And that happened a lot in 2020, by the way. 2020 was a remarkable year looking at our, our companies, companies whose scores were going 2018, their trust scores went up in 2019. They went up again in 2020, higher than the prior years. Customers that went into the COVID experience with a high level of trust, their scores went up. It's remarkable. Work meant more to people during that, this time of uncertainty. The opposite is also true. Customers that their trust level was deteriorating, it went bad in 2020. And so it just shows you the power and the reward of creating a high trust culture when you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty. And one of the things that happened in 2020 is companies had the opportunity to, number one, do things they had never done before, including we could never do business virtually. Well, guess what? I guess you can. And so all these realities, all these myths, you know, got shattered. But great companies talk to people about what's going on with your kids. What's going on with your elderly parent? By the way, I didn't know you had an elderly parent living there. I didn't even know you had kids. So this reality just got shattered. And so employees began to feel, wow, I actually matter. And we're talking about things like health and taking care of each other. In addition to EBITDA and cash flow, it created a situation where people started to feel. And then the community, their co-workers, was the only place of sanity because they had insanity going on outside the door with toddlers and, and so on. The community started to get closer. These became, for great companies, to talk about why we exist, including the political chaos that was going on in the United States and the division of what was going on in the United States. Leaders had to say, the employees, we've surveyed this. They don't care who their leader voted for. They care what their leader believes in. That's it. They care. And this is the purpose. Why do we exist? And you have to articulate these things. You have to talk about these things. There's also a new form, a group of startups forming right now that are going into companies that are not purpose-driven and trying to create an experience of purpose for those employees. That's how bad millennials in particular, Gen Z, they want it so bad. If their company's not providing it, they want to come together in their company to find a way to do things in society to make society better, even if their employer's not doing it. So if that's not evidence of a need and a demand and a requirement, I just don't know what is. And so the smart companies, they don't want some startup having to put their employees together to go work, do work in the community. Smart companies are doing that on their own because they know that when you get somebody activated, that their life has meaning and they know that their life has meaning, and they have a role in society to make things better, and work is just a thing, but there's so much more to life than that, they're going to give a lot more to the company. And we have the data to prove it. So Gary, McKinsey is an incredible organization, has grown and, and holds a very, quite honestly, important and special spot in American business history, as well as today, how businesses work around the globe. And as Michael just talked about, you know, culture is very important, but it also, as we all know, just can't be a bunch of slogans painted on the walls. It needs to exist as defined principles and ways of working to create a cohesive, long-lasting organization. McKinsey recently settled a major lawsuit for having consulted to Purdue Pharma. How does that settlement impact the culture at McKinsey? Well, 
As you might imagine, uh, given it's a legal situation, I can't, I, there's only so much I can say in a broad audience, but let me give you maybe a bit of a personal answer. And it's a little less about the settlement and more around the question of, you know, what work we do and how we do it. And it's shaken us, I think. It's, it's caused us to really step back and say, what type of work do we want to do and who do we want to do it for? We've put in place a whole host of, to your point around systems and processes, a whole host of new systems and processes so that we're answering that question well beyond what an individual partner or other uh, partner or partners might choose to do, so that we've got a you know, system-wide answer to that question. And I think when these things happen to great companies, and at least I'd like to believe we're a great company, you do some soul searching and you ensure you learn from the experience. And I think we're in the process of doing exactly that. We've always, to the prior conversation, we've always had a mission. I think really since our founding, it was around helping our clients make distinctive, lasting, and substantial improvements in their performance. We made that a two-part mission back in the early 80s. We added a second part, which is to build a great firm that attracts, develops, excites, and retains exceptional people. What we did over the course of the last year for the first time was actually codify what we thought our purpose was. Again, to Michael's point, a number of companies did that. We were one of them. I think it had always been there. Certainly, I joined McKinsey in the late 80s. I would have had a verbiage similar to what I'm about to say now, but we'd never actually written it down. And so we went through an internal process and codified our purpose to help create positive, enduring change in the world. And that notion of positive, enduring change then becomes the prism by which we view all our work. And if the work's not contributing to that, even if it feels like it's on mission, which is it's helpful for our clients or in some way builds a great firm, if it's not consistent with that purpose, we won't do it. So, Michael, we're a little tight on time, and I want to get through a number of the suggestions that the McKinsey authors wrote in their paper about getting companies ready for the next decade. But their imperative number five is to turbocharge decision-making and to prepare for the future. Many companies will need to reset their default mode by developing a bias for action and the ability to differentiate between cross-cutting and delegatable decisions. A, how would you see the pandemic either having accelerated or slowed that down? And then the other question I throw at you at the same time is just their imperative number six is to treat talent as scarcer than capital. And that the three core questions as far as human talent is what talent do we need, how can we attract it, and how can we manage talent most effectively to deliver on our value agenda? So can you talk on those two points that the McKinsey team puts together as far as how organizations need to change going forward? One thing I would say, McKinsey is a great company. They don't do our survey, but the reason I know is uh, the world listens to McKinsey. You know, we read McKinsey reports for a reason. So you only follow things you respect. I know a little shade just went by, Gary, but McKinsey will recover. And so as leaders, we all have things, you know, that that we bump into and we just have to look in the mirror and get better. That's what we have to do. I like the second part of what you said, Willie, around the future and people, meaning, I mean, for me, it's all about the people. And sometimes people say, oh, he's just a people guy. He just cares about, they don't know. I got Evita. I got cash flow. I got investors. I got global strategy. I got recession. I got all the things everybody has. It's just I the way I do it is to me, that stuff is just stuff you do. All the stuff we learned in business school, you do that. You got to focus on the people. It's spreadsheets are one thing. The people are another. And so I just lean in heavy and believe that's how you win, because that's been my life's experience and our customers. When we ask them, why did they do business with us? Number one, it's to keep the talent they have. That's to your second point. 
Number two is to attract top talent. That's it. It's like full stop. It's not just to have an award. They know that employees are proud to be in a place that's a great place to work for all. They know that people looking for where am I going to go to work, they're looking at our data and they're looking at Glassdoor data. They're looking at both to see what it's like. They're trying to get a feel for the culture, you know, and whether they're going to be listened to, whether they're going to be developed, whether they're going to get feedback, something millennials love getting feedback because their parents didn't do it. So there's a lot of powerful things that they're looking for in terms of their career. Opportunity, challenge, yes, flexibility. And to the first point around COVID, it has shown companies that we have customers, great companies, where some of their innovation teams in 2019 said, hey, we think we can decentralize call centers. Every company, no, you cannot decentralize a call center. And a ton of reasons why, and some other consulting firms' reports on why you couldn't do it. Guess what? They all got decentralized. Every single one of them. Not only did they get decentralized, productivity and performance went up. Bing, bing. And then cost analysis. The whole world has changed from absolutely cannot happen to not only is it happening, it's better. It's better now. And, uh, and better for our people. And look at our results, you know, as a result. So that's just an example of people knowing everything, not listening, because I'm a certified leader and I went to the school to prove it. And guess what? You were wrong. You were dead wrong. And, And you had to learn it in a brutal way, which should be a lesson. When you're so certain about what to do and how to do it, all that does is stop creativity, stops innovation stops inclusion and makes your people feel like they don't belong because you're running everything and you know everything. So it just works against you. So I think the COVID experience is great fuel for us to question everything that we're doing in our business and to focus on that purpose and know the only way to achieve a complex purpose is through innovation and new thinking and new approaches and open-mindedness. And how do you get those things? It's humility. So if you know everything, you're going to keep doing the same old thing. But if you have some humility, which 2020, if it didn't teach you humility, I don't know what you need. I don't know what you need if you didn't get some humility out of 2020. So I could keep going here for a long time, and I got about a thousand other things to talk to the two of you about. But I think that's a really good summary, Michael, of where we are today. Gary, in closing, your, your colleagues put a number of other things out there as it relates to companies needing to be able to use the, you view their partners as extensions of their businesses. And I think about that all going back to sort of how Apple created the App Store and allowed developers to build on their platform and how that has really transformed business. And then the other one is that it's, it is all about the data these days and that there's not a company out there that isn't focused on data, data, data. And your colleagues talk about that. But the final one is listening. And it sort of underscored everything that we've talked about today on the webcast. And it's my hope that everyone who's been joining us today has found this to be interesting. But it, it talks about continual learning. It talks about not only, as Michael said previously, being able to listen to the point where you might change your actions, but constantly learning. And it's one of the things I think that underscores why McKinsey is such a great corporation. And as Michael said, why everyone looks to McKinsey and listens to McKinsey. What's your thoughts as it relates to that final point on on listening and how companies can be learning and evolving enterprises? You know, there's a technical answer of you need to have the appropriate learning programs and training programs, et cetera. I think there's a softer version of that answer. 
And it does go back to a lot of what Michael said about listening to your customers, listening to your employees. It's very hard unless you have a situation like COVID that forces you to do 10 years of development overnight and you realize you can suddenly operate differently. The trick for many companies, and it comes back to that turbocharging point you made before, Willie, and that faster decision-making is to figure out how you do that in a more normal environment because that's going to be one of the key recipes for success. And at least what I'm finding is the best companies out there don't try to pivot the entire company on a whim. They do lots and lots of A-B testing, learn from the A-B testing. They do lots and lots of piloting, learn from the piloting. And then once they get conviction that there's a different way to go, boom, it's all systems pointed that direction. That's the way a learning organization works. It takes a lot of input in. It tries a lot of different things. It cuts failure as fast as possible. And then it puts all the effort around the stuff that's working. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank both of you for being with me today. It is truly an honor to have this discussion with the two of you. I thank you both for your time and for your friendship. To everyone who listened to us today, thanks very much for joining us on another Worker Webcast. We will be back next Wednesday, and I hope everyone has a fantastic day. Take care. Thank you both. Thanks, Willie. Thanks, all.